2: This is internet marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm your host Scott Colnutt, and today with me is Michelle Lynn co-founder and head of strategy at Mantis Research. And today we're going to be talking about how to create and publish survey-based research. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you on. And we were just talking before that we haven't really covered survey-based research and producing content off the back of that on our podcast, at least in my recent memory, having kind of managed and hosted the podcast. So I'm really excited to have you on. I've talked about what your role is and that you work for Mantis Research, but can you go more into your background for our listeners?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the marketing space for over 20 years, but um, before starting Mantis, I actually worked for an organization that your listeners might know of called Content Marketing Institute or CMI. So for the last decade, I have really been immersed in the content marketing space. Um, I was actually the first person that their founder, Joe Polizzi, hired back in 2010. So I've written a lot about content marketing, spoken about content marketing, And it was such a joy to manage the editorial at at CMI for many years. So long story short, you know, I love... It was my favorite job ever. And when I left CMI, I knew I still wanted to be in the content marketing space. But the space is crowded. There's so much going on. There's so much noise. And I knew I wanted to do something that was really specific to help content marketers break through all of this noise. And my favorite projects that I worked on with CMI and the ones I saw that performed the best were um, survey based research, which is why we started Mantis in 2018 to really educate and help marketers, you know, create this type of, of content.
2: And it's interesting that you talk about that, and this is purely coincidence, but you know when we were looking to when we look to get guests on our show, sometimes we have inbound inquiries, and sometimes we reach out to people that we would think would make interesting guests and It was really the topic and some of your experience but I didn't realize you were the first employee at content marketing Institute, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but we had Joe Polizzi on our podcast only maybe five to ten episodes ago. And, uh, yeah. So, and I spoke to him about, we were talking on the topic of how to stay in love with content marketing. So, uh, to our listeners, if you, if you happen to listen to this and haven't listened to that previous episode, go back and, uh, you can hear some of the, the origin story of CMI from Joe Pulitzi as well. In your, I remember reading, I think it was on your site bio at Mantis Research that you talk about your previous work with CMI and that you had been running their annual research for a number of years. I'm, I'm not too sure or familiar with that annual research process and what the goals were and what the outcomes were. So I'm kind of curious, could you maybe speak through that? Cause I'm, I'm guessing ultimately that was a big part of your role.
3: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. So back in 2001, when we launched, you know, CMI as the site, um, the Joe, the founder, he had the foresight to, so you know what, we want to create an annual study where we survey marketers to understand if and how they're using content marketing. The goal of the survey wasn't to say, you know, come to CMI or, you know, spend any money with us, but really what's going on in this space. So um, back in the day, we partnered with marketing profs and they still partner with marketing profs every single year. And they ran the first ever, you know, content marketing budgets, benchmarks, and trends. So, I, you know, you know, startups, they're very small, cyber that survey for many years. And then we, they did hire a research director, Lisa Merton Beats, who was wonderful. So, as I took on a different role and was managing the editorial, Lisa was, you know, headed up the research project. But um, having worked on it for so many years and having helped Lisa with it for so many years, it was always my favorite project to work on. I got to use my head in a different way. I always love seeing the data and the insights and it was just and honestly like when you look back at the content that we were putting out it was the content that was the best at giving us backlinks and so many people i talk to know about cmi's research so it's just one of those things that it's i think it really really helped cmi build a, a build a name for it's, itself you know many years ago and it's just gotten stronger since
2: and how many years were you doing that for
3: so i mean i worked on it you know my entire time that I was there and I know yesterday they just launched their 11th annual study their B2B budgets benchmarks and and trends so it's I'm, I'm happy to send a a link for people who want to check it out they did a really nice job
2: oh that'd be interesting yeah i mean i'll i'm probably going to go back and know i know a little bit more about that process and what you were aiming to do uh, i just I, i've seen so much content over the years i've been in marketing over a decade. And um, I just, I can't remember seeing those annual reports. So it's really interesting. we will probably go back and look at that and and that they're still doing that. That's a testament to the fact that it must be doing something great for them and for the industry as well. Ultimately, like I said, it I guess there was something in that role. And I can just tell from the, the way you're speaking that you enjoyed that process so much and you took that into your future career and, and where you are today. And and uh, on on that topic, we're going to be talking specifically about the continuation of that that survey-based research process um, and how people can essentially undertake that process in a way that makes the final product the final thing that they produce more effective so maybe can you speak on the process of survey-based research at mantis research and the process of how it works today for you
3: yeah, so we actually we take all of our clients over over time. We've developed a process that we use again and again and again. It's a four step process that we've actually coined the idea model. And in very simple terms, what we believe is that if you want your research to have an impact, if you want it to positively impact your business and your marketing, if you want it to have a really meaningful positive impact in your your know, audience's life. Um, So if you want it to have an impact, the first thing you need to have is really, really credible data. There's a lot of issues with data credibility, but so you need to make sure that, you know, that's table stakes, having data that's really credible. And then you need to explore that data in a way where you can um, unearth all of those insights and those stories to make the data really meaningful to your audience. And then you need to have an amplification plan to get those ideas out there. So there's a lot involved in every single step, but the basic premise is if you want impact, you need data, you need story, and you need um, a, a plan for your findings.
2: So we're going to break down because I think this is really interesting and we're going to break down those three areas in the podcast in a minute. But before we get that far to help bring it to life for our listeners, can you maybe speak on... Maybe an end-to-end example, if you're able to share company names, fine. If you're not, that's also okay, anonymized. But an example of a company that's come to you for some survey-based research, and then maybe speak on the process that you've gone through and then the outcome. Aligned with that, I'm curious about where businesses are coming to you or when individuals are coming to Mantis Research for your expertise. I'm interested to know what typically the end goal they have in mind is. What is it they're looking to achieve?
3: Yeah, so absolutely. So when we talk to clients, um, and we actually have them fill out this kickoff form when they do become clients. And I was actually just going through all of that intake the other day to just kind of see like, what are those reasons that they want to do research and what outcome would make them feel successful. And there's a lot of different reasons people do research. But I think, ultimately, it's because people want to become authorities in their industry, or, you know, better you know, make a a name for themselves. So for some, you know, this might be building leads, it might be building um, an email subscriber base. For some, they want to get credible backlinks. And for some, they want to get invitations to speak and just be seen as that person in their industry. So I think that there is so much content out there. And like you said, Scott, I mean, you've been running this podcast, you know, for 500 plus episodes, there's so much information out there. Um, So I think people are trying to figure out a way, like, how can I actually do something new that will get me known? And I think survey-based research, when done well, can work really, really well for it. So as an example, I mean, we have companies who come to us who are larger companies, who have bigger budgets, who want to do research, and it works really well. But I, I think sometimes it gets overlooked how well research can look for those fledgling businesses out there. Um, because I think it makes a very um, immediate impact for these small businesses. So one study that we worked on was with an organization called Typeset. And Sarah Mitchell and Dan Hatch, um, as there's some friends over there too. But what they wanted to do is their organization, they provide content writing services for marketers and, and small business owners. So what they wanted to do is they said, you know, I'm really curious, what does the writing process look like in most businesses? Do people use an editorial calendar? Are they proofreading? What parts of the process are difficult? What's easy? What's working well? And then they wanted to understand what are those who are more successful, who are getting better results? What are those people doing differently? So we put together, you know, and their goal, because they were a new company, their goal was to, you know... Bring people to their websites, get backlinks, build their domain authority, get email subscribers, and so forth. So what we did is we put together this survey. Um, they sent it out to their, you know, the people who they knew in, um, in, in, in the industry. They have a wide network. And what we put together was the state of writing in 2020 rep- report. And like I said, as it said, it really dug into what does the writing process look like for businesses in, in 2020. So, one of the reasons I like this example, because their timing was absolutely terrible. (laughs) They launched this in end of February, beginning of March, prior to the pandemic. So, not not great. Um, But what they discovered was that their um, backlinks, they got tons more backlinks and referring links to their site. Their domain authority um, increased by 10 points in just one month. They saw a spike in their email subscribers. And I know Sarah has been invited to speak at different conferences and events, and through workshops and things like that. So it's this this one piece of content is really helping them, you know, establish themselves, and it's helping them build their their brand. And the nice thing is they, because they have all of this data, they can also use it in all these different ways to get to have continual content for their business.
2: Mm, that sounds like a, a study that would or. Uh a piece of research that would be really interesting for a lot of our listeners. So I'd also ask you to maybe send me those links so I can share those in the show notes because that's really relevant to, again, a lot of probably what a lot of people that listen to this podcast are interested in. Um, So thanks for sharing that example. That's kind of brought it to life for me as well. And it's uh, before we move on into those kind of three stages or elements of your process, something just come to mind that I'm really curious about, As someone that's involved in that research process, do you have a personal preference about the outcome and what's most enjoyable for you to work on? And um, it's really hard. It's kind of a hard thing to explain what I'm thinking, but is it satisfying to work on survey-based research that you know where someone has the goal to be an authority or to become an authority? And how does that compare to someone that maybe comes to you to utilize your expertise to maybe generate backlinks? Is there a preference for you?
3: So as long as someone, and we only work with clients like this, the big tipping point for us is if the goal is to get backlinks or to become an authority, I'm actually fine with either. I think they both are very valid reasons to do research. And a lot of times clients get get both. The thing that, um, you know, we, I, we made a mistake back in the day, but we only work with clients who want to approach, approach research in a very, with, with a um, curiosity, with the, who want to lead with a very curious mindset. So for instance, like those who say, you know what, I mean, we've had people come to us who say, you know, we want to do research that will show, you know, why people need, you know, e- email marketing. I'm just making that up. And those are studies that we never take. The punchline should never be your, your service or your product. Instead, like what are those things that are on, on the minds of, of your audience and how can we unearth and uncover new things? So as long as we're approaching research with that mindset, to me, the, the goals, and a lot of times you're going to get, you're going to get more than what you're planning for. It, it's for me, it's, it's still satisfying.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess, cause it's becoming an authority is, I mean, it's something that I hear a lot and talk about a, a fair bit on this podcast as well. But it's also somewhat difficult to measure, or at least people measure it in different ways. So you could maybe argue that one project, one survey-based research project, is not going to be maybe enough. And maybe you'll tell me something different. Is not going to be a- enough on its own to help you become an authority. It's a if you if you're if you want to become an authority, you've got to seek longevity as well. So I think what I'm saying is that. To you need to replicate this process and you, to, you need to remain curious and have that curious mindset in order for you to become an authority. And that's where the difference is between coming or becoming an authority over time, and then perhaps basing your perception of authority on links or shares or something, which is actually usually just a one-off process.
3: Yeah, no, a 100%. I, I don't believe in vanity metrics. I don't right, yeah. believe in that type of thing. I mean, I, I do believe email subscriber is a really important goal. And I actually think backlinks from authoritative websites is a, is a good goal, too. Not not in a smarmy, you know, black hat kind of way. But if you can get really good backlinks of people who link to you because they consider you the source of, of information in your industry, I think that's really, really powerful. But to your point, Scott, if, if you, you can't just publish one study and, and, and consider it done. I mean, you have to use this study as a jumping off place to to tell many different stories and to have like this be your like rock piece of content, but with all those different, you know, you know, I always think of atomized content, but all those different pieces of content coming out from it. Um, And I know we're going to talk about amplification later, but there's a lot of different ways that you can use your research to continue with that, with that curiosity mindset. So it's just a starting place, but I think it can be a really good jumpstart if you're looking to start that process.
1: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite.
0: Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how AllBirds redefines comfort. Visit allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A L L B I R D S.com, code SUPER24.
2: I love that phrase, by the way atomized content. That's a great phrase. I've not heard that before, but it's a really good cool way to kind of visualize. And um, I guess what I typically refer as content repurposing, it's a it's a much more flamboyant and enjoyable phrase than uh, content repurposing. I love that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to move on to the, I guess the, I'm going to call them the key elements or the critical elements of your process, which are to, to maximize the impact or the effect effectiveness of your final product uh, based on the survey based research. And those elements are credible data, a compelling story and amplification that you referred to earlier. So maybe if I can start off with credible data, um, can you speak on some of the most common mistakes you see when it comes to making your data credible? Common pitfalls, and ultimately, how can people ensure that the data that they're producing from this research is credible?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think when we talk about survey-based research, I think data is data and story are very tough to get right. But I think data is is a lot of times it's the sticking point for marketers. And we did some research with BuzzSumo, and we actually did this to help us, you know, build a authority for our, our brand. And one of the questions we asked, you know, of those doing survey-based research, do you think your data is, is credible? And 92% of those who responded said, yes, it is. And, and of course, if you do research, of course you think that your data is is credible. So I don't think that the stat is by any means wrong. But we ask the question because when, then when you start to dig in and you start to see all of these mistakes that I believe marketers are unintentionally making because they just don't know this is a, a, a new muscle for many, um, I think there's a lot of of pitfalls in there that people just aren't even thinking about. And you don't know it un- until you actually go through the process you know, several times. So, I mean, I, I think... You know we talked about this but I and I I'm just saying it again cuz I think it is so key you need to have the right mindset when you're thinking about your data if you're trying to lead people to buy your product or or solution or to justify why someone needs you know email marketing you're going about research in the wrong way it's not going to feel feel credible and I've actually seen conversations on LinkedIn where people announce their research and people call them out We're like well that just seems too neat and 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 too tidy you know so Make sure that you're looking for what are all of those tangential knowledge points that I want to gather that are going to be really helpful to my audience, and I think that's a great starting place. I think another mistake that we see a lot of people unintentionally make is be, is, is that they don't necessarily qualify who their survey responses, respondents are. So they put a survey out there, and they let anybody answer it because they're trying to build those numbers because they think a larger sample size equals more credible. And while a sample size is really important, you have to make sure that the right people are filling out your survey. If not, you're, you know, I've I've been asked to take surveys. I'm guessing you've been asked to take surveys, Scott, and you start to get into these questions, you know, like I'm not even the right person to be answering these. Um, So some people, you just need to make sure that you're qualifying people, um, which we can talk about if you're interested, and you need to make sure that you know, you're asking questions. So you can say these are the people who participated in in my survey.
2: I am interested in that process of um, qualifying survey respondents. The two things that combined that I am interested in are, I guess, how do you qualify and what's your recommendation for how people qualify survey respondents? Do they profile them? How can you practically do that within some survey platforms if you could maybe speak on that? And I guess it ties in because this question always comes up for me is what is a valid sample size? And um, that's something I've never really explored myself. So I'm curious to know your answer on that.
3: Yeah, I'm going to answer this the sample size question first because that's a yeah. faster answer. So if you are surveying consumers like, you know, adults in the US or adults in the UK, whatever that looks like, I would aim for at minimum 1000 responses. That seems like a very credible sample size. Um, they're let me back up. There are definitely, if you know how large your population is, there are sample size calculators that you can, can use to figure out what that number is. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to get, um, we're, we're doing research for marketing purposes. So I'm, I'm not at all saying you don't have to have that number, but you know, we're not doing research for like, to like prove, you know, drugs work or anything like that. So you know what I mean? So let's, it's important to have a good sample size but it doesn't have to be that precise um, to really figure out what those trends are. So if it's a consumer based audience I would always aim for at least a thousand people. If you are surveying a b2B audience so let's say you're surveying marketers or IT professionals, depending on how specific you need that sample size, how specific you want that sample to, to be, um, you can typically get away with a lot fewer. So I actually just asked that question on LinkedIn a couple weeks ago, and I asked people, like, you know, do you have a sense of, uh, as, as a reader of survey data, do you have a sense of, like, what the minimum bar for B2B responses is in a, in a survey? Um, and we kind of landed around 250. So that's not scientific, but it's a good um, starting place, I think, if you're trying to survey B2B professionals. And, and the other thing I would think about when you're thinking about sample size, too, though, is if you are going to compare different segments... So let's say going back to that state of writing report that I talked about at the beginning, if you want to see what are those who are successful, what are they different doing differently than those who are less successful, you need to make sure that you have enough people in each in each segment so that data makes sense. If if you have, you know, twenty people in a, in a, in a segment, that's just far too far too small. Does that help with that one?
2: No, that's a really good answer for that. And then tied in with that is then qualifying. So what's your process for, uh, yeah, do you come up with a profile? Do you come up with criteria for the people that you're going to target? How does that work?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So when I'm looking to qualify people in general, I recommend, especially if you are doing a business audience, keeping the criteria as wide as possible so you can get the most people in. You know, so many people say, well, I want to talk to companies who only have, you know, a thousand plus employees and, you know, they go through, again, they get very specific because that's who their client is. And there's something to be said for that. But if you're surveying people, it's best to keep the sample broad so you can get more people in. That said, and this is especially true if you are using panels, and panels are, um, you can work with different companies who have people to take your surveys. Those people in short are, are incentivized to finish your survey So you need to ask questions that are going to, um, I don't want to say trick people, but you need to ask questions. If you take a a survey, you can oftentimes like figure out who they're trying to get through the survey. Mm -hmm. So I just did a survey around digital experience. And one of the questions that we asked was, you know, what is your role in, in digital experience? Is it customer support? Is it managing the process? Is it, you know, website conversions? We had a few different options and we only accepted some of those because a survey, t- which made sense with what we were trying to do, because a survey taker did not know which of those things we were searching for. So it was a good way to make sure the right people were answering our particular survey. And the other thing I would do if you're using a panel specifically is ask a question to qualify people based on, on skill. So, for instance, when we do surveys that are that target marketers, we might say, you know, tell me what kind of marketing includes the sharing of information on LinkedIn and and Twitter. You or I would know that is, is is social media marketing. My husband, who's in finance, if he was trying to take that, he probably wouldn't know. So it's just questions like that to just really test for for skill and for the right place in the organization. Those are really Excellent. helpful.
2: Now, that's some really great advice. And I'm going to move on to the next element because I think we've covered that in some in some fair detail. Actually, before I do move on to what I'm curious about is do you find yourself, just because you're in this space and you're doing a lot of research, does that make you more inclined to fill out surveys for other people a lot? Because you just talked there about sometimes when you're filling in surveys. I'm just wondering if uh, you get a lot of your experience and knowledge and ideas from completing a lot of surveys of your own.
3: Yeah, I mean, I love to look at survey results. And I also love to take surveys. I mean, I'm I'm right. very much a am purist. If I'm not the right person for the survey, I'm not going to go through it because I don't want to ruin someone's data. Um, yeah. But if the survey <laughs> is meant for me, I will always take it. And I truthfully, I'll like take pictures of pictures of things I don't like, or I do I like screenshots. Oh, um, I keep those in a in a swipe file.
2: <laughs> that's really that's something so fascinating to be conscious of but um yeah it just struck me that it's there's almost like a, a guilt there if you know you're not the right person to be targeting you wouldn't want to mess up their data so uh you're so conscious of their data credibility that it would stop you from completing it yourself um that's just fascinating to me it's uh, put a smile on my face so uh, moving on to the next element of creating compelling stories this this is probably the part that most excites me and is interesting to me and i think i think probably uh, for me is the most satisfying element just of data i like data analysis anyway so when i'm left a lot of data and i've got to find stories within data and trends i love that whole process um can you maybe speak on how people can maximize their chances of creating a compelling story through this process that you run through what can they do at the start what can they do at the end and what's your process like
3: Absolutely. So I'm like you. I think mining that story from the data—that's where it gets really fun to me. Um, But as you say, like we've had people come to us and they said, "Hey, we did these surveys, and we got all these people to answer, and we realized we have nothing that's actually interesting to 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 report." Um, So you need to start from the from the beginning and think, well, what are those stories that I want to be able to tell? So, for instance, you know, some of the questions that we always ask clients to think through. Um, like, what type of thinking is occurring in your industry that you would like to to challenge? So, like that 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 question there. Like, what are those myths that you want to bust? That always gets people's heads thinking. Um, like, okay, what do we want to say that's going to be different and that's going to be new? Um, that always helps. We always ask people to think about, you know, what are the biggest missed opportunities you think that people have in your in your space. So what are they doing that they shouldn't be or what are they um, not doing that they should be? And how can we ask questions to try to uncover what we think that this gap is? Now, of course, of course, of course, we don't know what the data is going to actually say. But to start thinking about the, the outcome from from the beginning, you can you can ask questions then that are going to be able so you, you can test what your hypotheses are, Um so that to me is the starting place. A lot of people I think they want to jump right into putting together survey questions, but we we are very big believers of taking time in the beginning and asking these like industry pressing questions to make sure that you can ask good survey questions so you have good data at, at, at the end.
2: And and when you get to the end and you and you have those results, I'm curious to know in your company and just your opinion, who do you think is best to assess those results? And I say that because Um, sometimes finding stories and finding compelling information, it doesn't always necessarily come from an analyst. Sometimes someone else might spot something that you haven't. How does that process work in your team?
3: Yeah, so for us, it's a very collaborative process. I mean, we, like we said, from the outset, we know what types of stories we're we're looking at. Another type of story, I'm just going to digress for one second, another type of story that's really interesting to tell is where that disconnect is. So for instance, in that state of writing report, we found, I can't remember the data specifically, but we found that a lot of companies want want to write more in the coming 12 months, but a lot of companies were not planning to make that investment in, in writing. There was an obvious disconnect. So it's really interesting as you're, some of those disconnects you're looking for from the outset and some of those disconnects you then see when, when you're going through the actual data. Well, you know, I see this and then I also see this and these two things, you know, there's definitely some friction there. Um mm. So when we're working with clients, we always put together, you know, here's all the data, here are some ideas for some key findings, but always, always, always when we're walking through all of the data, especially when people invite others from their team to, to join the call, people are already thinking about, oh, look at this and what about that? So it's one of those things you start, but you really have to sit with the data to f- have those stories, you know, really, really come out
2: that's an interesting point actually sitting on the data cuz in terms of any form of data analysis sometimes there i think data analysts need to be given time to sleep on and reflect on data it's kind of something that you need to assess the data and it's really du- it's really difficult when i've seen analysts under time pressure uh, because they miss those things that yeah that you that you find through sleeping on data so um, you talked that about that being a collaborative process, but maybe can you speak on the length of time that you sit on data or the length of time you allow to create stories from the data? Is that like a one-day process, a one week, a one month? How does that look often for you?
3: Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because so when I go through data, I like to look at all the data and then I, I personally like to give it a day or two just to kind of sit with it and like mull it in my subconscious. And then I go back and I, and I review everything prior to giving it, it, it to the client. So for me, it's a couple of days. Um, and then, of course, when we meet with the client, they have insights that I hadn't, hadn't thought about. Um, and I think that the beautiful thing about doing this kind of, of research, especially if it's longer form of research, I mean, you're typically you're typically going to be putting together research findings and I always tell clients like have that research finding focus on one key story one key one one key through line if 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 you will and as you're going through that data you're gonna have so many other ideas of oh let's talk about this or you know we, we can go down this path and and, and explore this uh, so I think I think figuring out what those key themes are happens you know relatively quickly those things kind of pop up but the more you live with the data, you can keep telling stories from that for for months. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's kind of this. It, it's it's kind of a, it's, it's a very iterative process. And the only thing that I will say too is I know um, Sarah Mitchell from Typeset. She had, she had shared this on a um, CMI blog when I had shared their data with them. She was 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 actually writing their their report. Life got in the way, and she didn't have a chance to get back to the report for you know a month or something. Um, and losing that time in the middle from initially looking at it to like coming back to it cold, that's really hard too. So mm. I would say you have to move at a good pace, but give yourself some time to think about it, but not don't think too long or else you're going to lose that 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 momentum.
2: Yeah, that's really great advice. And it's really an interesting thing to kind of ponder for a moment. So thanks for that. And um, before we move on to the next element, I am curious about formats. And you talked about um, long form research Um, And and when I think of surveys, I still think typically about copy-based surveys, so questions and answers in a a text format. But um, is that how you run surveys? Because I know there are different formats where you could argue now that, you know, there's lots more video or audio content being asked for in certain surveys. Uh, What's the process that you guys follow?
3: So we typically do two types. I mean, the vast majority of what we do is quantitative survey-based research without videos and, and such. Um, but we also have clients who run qualitative research with obviously a much smaller group of people, um, and they'll talk to these about these, you know, topics more in, in depth. So you can certainly do both both together, which only makes your research stronger. Yeah. But, and do you have and a there's, a, there's a preference. lot of the questions that surveys can't answer well. Like, you have to be very cognizant, like, can, is, this, is, is this survey the, the right mechanism for this?
2: Uh, yeah, no, that's an interesting thought and, and sorry I, I was uh, I interrupted you at the beginning there, but do do you have a personal preference in terms of qualitative or quantitative data and research?
3: I actually think they work really well together as a yeah. person who does research. Um, I only do survey based research, and I work with my business partner, Claire McDermott. um She does a lot of survey based research also, but she takes on all of the qualitative projects. Cause she's just great at it. She's like that great interviewer and she's great at (laughs) getting all all of those ideas together. Um, I can do it, but I don't think it's, it's not, it's not my love.
2: Well, no, that's interesting. And that's the the reason I raised it. And so it's interesting your response there, because again, sometimes, um, well, I just think it's important for our listeners and just anyone that's maybe not familiar with, with research is that, there is the two. There are two forms of research: the quantitative and qualitative. And um, and also sometimes it's not a single person that's best at doing both. And like you said, certain skills, interview skills, a data analyst might not necessarily have those skills um, because it requires a different type of person, or it might not be their area of interest. Yeah, I just think that's a really interesting. Uh, it's really interesting that you have two different personalities that handle that those two different streams of research. And then you come together, I assume, at the end, if you're working on a project that has both streams and kind of talk through those results, right?
3: Absolutely. And quite frankly, Claire will typically take on the projects that require both. So she's yeah. great at doing survey-based research too. Um, so that's just how it's typically worked out. But yeah, so it's it, it depends. And we like different industries. And it's just interesting that we have very complementary interests. So it, it, it's always just kind of worked out in a natural way.
2: No that, that, no, that is good. That must be a really enjoyable uh, kind of environment to work in when you have that. Um, and then moving on to the last element of this process of amplification. So, yeah, I'm curious to for you to maybe provide some examples of how you then recommend how content is is promoted is amplified and also maybe can you speak on you used the phrase atomized yeah atomized content earlier maybe a few examples from some of the research that you've worked on about how you repurpose that content
3: yeah absolutely so I, one of the things i think a lot of marketers struggle with mostly because of time and other priorities is it takes it's a lot of time and work to get these research projects done So once you publish them, sometimes you can just feel tired. (laughs) I think we can all relate to that and you need to move on to the next thing. Um, But, but we were and we did some research with BuzzSumo to understand if and how marketers are using research. And this is not a remotely surprising finding, but we did find that those who do more with their research were having more success. Hmm. So You know, in just very simple terms, we always, you know, challenge people, do at least six different things with the research that that you publish. So, of course, the question is, well, what should I actually do with the research? Um, This, again, goes back to what your goals are. So, for instance, if you said, you know what, I really want to use this research to to generate leads or to build my email subscriber base, you know, you probably want to prioritize things like doing webinars that talk about the why of the research. Or you might want to do um, put together like I've done this for CMI and others. Like in our content marketing research, you know, we find that those who have a content marketing um, strategy tend to be more successful than those who, who don't. So when I was running that team, I put together a guide on how to document your content marketing strategy. So the research would point to this gated asset, which we would then use to build our email list. So if if your goal is to get leads, you know, think about what are those things that I can do from this research that are actually going to generate leads and prioritize those things. But if your goal is to say, get, you know, good backlinks, a lot of times those lead forms can stop people from getting backlinks. Um, so as, as a tangent, I always recommend having a landing page or a blog post or something that people point to pick one spot and have everybody point there. Even if you, even if, even if something is, is gated. Um, but in any case, let's let's say your goal is to get backlinks. Well, in that case, you probably want to focus on things like writing guest posts for other publications with higher um, um, do- domain authority, or you might want to, you know, share it on social media, or you might want to, you know, do any of those other things that are going to drive traffic to your website. So it really is a it really isn't. It's depends. Answer, but again, prioritize what you're going to do based on what your goals are.
2: And I know this, uh, I've seen uh, just in the sharing of notes prior to this podcast, and I was going to ask this question anyway, but you always have some, well, not always, sometimes there's this moment at the end where you have this great research, you have some really compelling stories, but then perhaps people haven't factored in budget or time or resource to then amplify this content. So can you maybe share a few examples of some cost effective ways of amplifying content um, if people don't have much budget to spare at the end of this process?
3: Absolutely. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that you can do. Some things are really simple. Like you can make sure that you could take all the charts. Let's so you do quantitative survey-based research and you're going to have tons of different charts from that. You could take all of the charts that you created. Um, there's a certain size that we always use that I can share with you if you would like. Excellent. But you know, there's a, we always put all of our charts in a very certain size so it can be shared across different social channels and then you can package up those charts and put them in, in, a, in a zip file, and you can attach them to your blog post or whatever to make it really easy for people to share that data. You can do things like reach out to influencers in your space, share the research with them, say, hey, I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts. Can I use your quote in our blog post or on social? Um, it's a great way to get the research out in, in, in front of others, and they might be more likely to share that research too something that I've been experimenting with a lot lately is, is LinkedIn. So I love to look at the findings of your research as a starting place for a conversation to dig in more. Mm -hmm. So one of the things like, this is an example I did a, we did a study about thought leadership. Like what is thought leadership? What does it actually even mean? It's such a a loaded term. Um, So I partnered with Andy Crestedina from orbit media, as well as SurveyMonkey. And we asked all these different questions about thought leadership. And one of the questions we asked was, is the quality of thought leadership impacted if it is ghostwritten? And it was really interesting because about half said yes and about a half said no. So this was another study that I published. I think it was the week of, of the pandemic. So it was a, another great timing. Um, so after I kind of got my out of my headspace, coming August, I went to LinkedIn and I, and I asked the, the question, you know... This is what our research found, you know, hey, LinkedIn users, do you think that the quality of research is impacted if it's if it's ghostwritten? And so many people responded, they had passion about it, and it led to more LinkedIn posts, more in engagement, and so forth. So if we ever do another study about thought leadership, we can use a lot of that information to ask deeper questions. Um, and I was even thinking about doing a study around ghostwriting because so many people had so much passion. So it's just, it, it it was totally free to do, but it, it spurred such interesting conversation. And as a marketer, it really invigorated my energy around stuff because people actually cared, you know? So it was just, it's a, I think it's a great way, way to share.
2: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I could go off on a tangent and we are coming towards the end of our time together now, but, um, I think maybe in the future, if you cover that in more detail, we'll have to get you back on to discuss that topic. Um, That would lend itself to a really good podcast because even as you posed that question, just as you were providing the example, it got my brain ticking over about ghostwriting and my thoughts about it. I guess it's for whatever reason, it's a question that invokes an immediate feeling. It did in me anyway. And so, Yeah, that's really fascinating. Can I ask one last?
3: I'm going to just be really tangential here. And one of the things I I talk about when you're putting together your own research is to think about what are those questions that really do invoke passion in people in your industry and ask about them. Because not only will the data be interesting, but you can use it to start really great conversations. So I just was talking about this the other day. So like we joke, I a lot of us are English majors, like what is the Oxford comma debate that's actually going on in in, in, in your space? So think about those <laughs> things and ask questions and then it works really well,
2: so. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Thanks for that. And yeah, um, do, do, do follow up and share some of that um, research in the future. I'll be curious to see that. Before we do close out, um, I'd love for, you, for any final pieces of advice from you for our audience on, how to maximize the impact of any survey-based research they might be considering doing. So um, any further resources you'd like to share final thoughts far away.
3: Yeah. So Andy Crestedina has a, a great quote, <clears throat> excuse me, that I'm just paraphrasing right now, but he basically said, you know, you're going to find that research takes 10 times the effort of any other content marketing piece, but you're going get to get 100 times the, the, the results. And he's so right because these, these projects do take a lot of time and there are so many details that marketers marketers are probably either good at data or they're probably good at story or they're probably good at promotion, but to combine all three is quite the process. So if you're going, if you need to get help in one area, I would definitely get help with the actual survey design, you know, reach out, test it with others, make sure things aren't unclear, like really spend a lot of time in that process so that when you do get through and you go get all your responses, you actually have something interesting to, to um, say. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to look at what others are doing. There's so many great, there's so many good examples out, out there. And it really helps to, you know, just open your eyes and see what others are, are doing. And, and you're sure to, to get um, great ideas for your own projects.
2: brilliant thanks for that and um before i do let you go do you want to let our listeners know where they can connect with you learn more about you and mantis research
3: yes so our website is mantisresearch.com um you can also find me on twitter i'm at michelle lynn michelle with one l Lynn with two two n's so m-i-c-h-e-l-e-l-i-n-n um and i like i said i've been experimenting a lot more with linkedin lately so i love connecting with people on linkedin I love knowing what's on your mind as a marketer or a business owner. And I love just like having conversations to get people's minds thinking. So LinkedIn is a great source to connect
2: with me. Amazing. Thanks. I'm going to make sure that I look out for your conversations on LinkedIn because they already have me curious. So uh, thanks so much for joining me today and sharing that information. I'll share all of the links to where people can connect with you in the show notes it struck me at the end actually as we were talking about amplification that we at site visibility created a guide maybe around a year ago now called the ultimate content promotion guide which might come in handy for a lot of those people that have survey-based research that they're looking to promote and they're not quite sure where to start and i think you can still find that at bit.ly slash ultimate hyphen content or it's uh, available via the resources section of our website so i'd recommend you check that out too But for now, I'd just say thanks again for joining me. That's been a really interesting discussion, and I'm so glad you took the time out to uh, speak with me. Thank you.
3: Thanks so much, Scott. This was fun.
2: Brilliant. Take care. Bye-bye.
3: Bye.
1: Selling a little?